Hey, everybody, come see us because we're coming to see you. Specifically, if you live in Chicago, on July 24th, we're going to be at the Harris Theater. And the following night, we're going to be at the Danforth Music Hall in Toronto. And that's just the beginning. That's right. We're also going to our beloved Wilbur Theater, which we own, in Boston (laughs) on October 29th. And then our first visit to Portland, Maine at the State Theater on August 30th. Yep, that's going to be followed in October. We're going to take a little break because that's a lot of touring. In October on the 9th, we're going to be at the Plaza Live in Orlando. And then on October 10th, we're going to be at the Civic Theater in New Orleans. That's right. And in October, we're going to round it all out at the Bell House in Brooklyn for three shows, October 23rd, 24th, and 25th. Yep. So go to SYSKlive.com for tickets and information. And we will see you starting this July in Chicago. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jer Dog, the Roland <laughs> of all time over there, and this is Stuff You Should Know. Wow. I got to pep it up a little bit, you know? Is that what that was? <laughs> oh. You got to screw it up a little bit. That's what I meant to say. Speaking of screwing up, Uh Chicago, Illinois is screwing up. (laughs) It is. I was I was trying to think about this. Like, which approach should we take? Should we should we just outright lie and say like there's very few tickets left, so you better go get them now? No. Or should we shame them and say there are plenty of tickets left? A disappointing amount of tickets left. I think we should just be honest and not shame them. Okay. But express our Disappointment. Nothing works better than disappointment. You know, Chicago, we <laughs> really expected a little more from you than this. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you're confused about what we're talking about, uh, it's <laughs> probably because you haven't heard, uh, and that's our fault, about our live shows coming up all around the country to cities we've never been to before. Yeah, yeah, we've never been to Orlando before. We've never been to Portland, Maine before. That's right, but uh, we are going to Chicago again because we thought Chicago loved us on July twenty fourth <laughs> at the Harris Theater, right? And then Toronto the next night on July twenty fifth. They're buying a lot of tickets. They love us up there. Yeah, at the Danforth. Uh, and then Boston, August 29th. Portland, <clears throat> Maine, August thirtieth. Orlando and New Orleans, October 9th and tenth. Mm-hmm. And then Brooklyn, the twenty third through the twenty fifth. Yeah, of October. Three- Three-night run at the Bell House in Brooklyn, which is going to be great. That's right. Um, But again, Toronto, you're doing great, guys. Keep it up. Chicago, you could stand to step it up a little bit. You got a little bit of time, but why wait, you know? Yeah, I mean, the seats are only going to get worse. True that, Chuck. True (laughs) that. So just go to SYSK Live uh, for our home, our touring home on the web. Mm -hmm. Thanks to our buddies at Squarespace. Oh, yeah. And uh, now let's talk about the Fairness Doctrine. (laughs) Okay. We actually need to, um, if this were, say, pre-1987, we would need to have Jerry come in and say, so here's all the reasons why you shouldn't buy tickets to Stuff You Should Know Live (laughs) if we were going to follow the Fairness Doctrine. But it's not 1987. And as a matter of fact, I wonder how podcasting would how this would apply or have applied to podcasting if it had still been around or if podcasting would have been one of those things that kind of grew up around the Fairness Doctrine. Who knows? But it's a fascinating, um, what are those called when uh, when it's an impossible? Sure, there's another word for it. When it's something that just can't possibly happen, kind of like speculative fiction or something like that. I can't sure. remember. But, you know, since podcasts don't fall under the FCC, then I doubt if it would have mattered. Oh, yeah, I guess it's, that's true, huh? Yeah, we could, if we wanted to right now, we could say every curse word, every awful thing in the world under the sun. We elect not to do that, everyone. I heard a, a radio DJ the other day say, um, I know you want to curse so bad right now. This is why we're getting a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I guess we could I guess we could curse, but it's I like that we don't, Chuck. I do too. And if you want to hear me curse, just uh A, you can come to a live show. True to true, yeah. Because that happens a little bit. Or B, you can just join uh me over at Movie Crush. I cuss a lot over there. 
Yeah. I think at first people were like, oh. And then now I think people go listen in part to right. hear you curse. They like to hear yeah. that blue streak coming out of that hear beard. the real me. <laughs> oh, I'd like to think that both sides are the real you put together. Well, for roughly two and a half hours a week, this is the real me. <laughs> Do you find it difficult not to curse on, on the show? Uh, no, I mean, I'm fully used to it by now. Yeah, same But uh, I, I definitely am not as fully freewheeling as I normally am. Yeah, I guess I, sh- I should say I don't want to give the impression that I'm like some, you know, Flanders type or whatever. I curse pretty routinely myself in regular life. But <laughs> it, I guess I find it kind of comforting just knowing that there's a there's a safe space where I don't say the F word a lot. <laughs> you should start another podcast just called Filth, Florin, Filth with Josh Clark. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a pretty good idea. But none of this has to do with the 1920s except for the fact that people did not curse on the radio back then either because there weren't a lot of people on the radio in the 1920s. No, actually pre... Or early, early, early 1920s, that is. Right. Pre-November 1920, there was not much going on on the radio aside from Morse code, some ham radio operators. And remember, we did a pretty good episode on ham radio. Love those hams. If I remember correctly. Yeah. But one of the things I remember about that ham radio episode is that there was a kind of a whole hacker anarchic ethos um, surrounding the early days of radio. You know, it's just a total free-for-all. You could broadcast on whatever station you wanted to and get in arguments with, you know, the government if you wanted to. Who who cared? There was, there was not a, a lot of ways to trace anybody. So there was a lot of anything-goes mentality among the early ham radio operators. But but that was basically all you would hear is people saying like, um, like, hey, how's it going kind of thing. <laughs> you know, maybe some heavy breathing. And then in November 1920, a station called KDKA actually organized itself. And the first broadcast um, that it, it put out was reading the election results from the James Cox. Uh, James Cox. Oh, my gosh. I almost just violated FCC rules. All this dirty talk. talk. <laughs> James Cox, uh, Warren Harding, uh, 1920 presidential election. It was the first commercial um, licensed radio broadcast in, in uh, the world, I think. Yeah, I think that's a great trivia question. If someone were to say what was what city, you know, hosted or whatever was part of the, the first radio, commercial radio broadcast, mm-hmm. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, and the, the follow-up would be, and what did they broadcast a federal uh, a presidential election outcome, mm-hmm. which was a big deal because it's weird to think about in 1920 that people all over the country were waiting for that morning paper to come out, except mm-hmm. in Pittsburgh. They knew. Right, they did know. And not everybody in Pittsburgh, just the people who had basically built their own radios because that, that was the well, radios that were around. They were there were like eight people hard, in Pittsburgh. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. But the the fact that this happened and word spread pretty quickly, yeah, some people in Pittsburgh knew the election results because they were listening to the radio. And they ran um, around yelling that out and said, right. we heard it on our radio. And everyone's like, these people, lock them up. Yeah, and also, other little known fact, the first song played on the radio was Radio Killed the Newspaper Star. <laughs> did you just make that up or did you have that prepped? I just made it up. Okay. Good job. Thank you, man. <laughs> um, I'm glad I got like that grudging good job because there was almost contempt in that first initial laugh. Well, because off the cuff, that's a great joke. But if sure. you workshop that over a few hours, then I don't know. <laughs> When's the last time I workshopped a joke? I don't know. I'm, okay. You don't let me in your workshop anymore. I know. I keep it a closely guarded <laughs> secret. So, okay. So, here's the point. This is the reason we're even talking about that first broadcast is because that was November 1920. By 1924, I think there were, in, in, in 1920, there were like 20,000 radios. 1924, there were one and a half million radios in the United States. By 1930, 80, no, 1940, 83% of every household in America had a radio. And so there there was this massive transition from distributing <clears throat> news and making sure everybody was up to date on all the information they needed to be like a smart voter or hold like political or social or cultural opinions. Um, that transition moved from newspapers, from print, 
which still hung around. Sure. But over to radio. Radio became much um, much more prevalent as far as the spread of information to a, an increasingly large number of people went in the United States in a very short time, in like 20 years. Yeah, so um, in the 1940s, the FCC, and, you know, there's some background to all this that we'll get to, but we haven't even really said what the Fairness Doctrine is yet. No, no. Uh, finally, in 1949, um, the the U.S. government said, you know what? We need some help here. We're a little bit worried that, mm-hmm. um, geez, somebody could – some private citizen who's wealthy could go and buy all the radio stations and essentially propagandize the news. Right. And there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. So basically what they said was this. There is one thing we can do about it. We can flex our muscle as the government and specifically say – you broadcasters can't do that. That's right. Via something called the Fairness Doctrine, uh, right. which had the overall goal of basically, and it's, it's very kind of cute to look back at this time period, mm-hmm. but its initial goal was to make sure that all the information on the on the radio waves uh, was good information and true and fair and enriching. Uh, and there there's only so much space on a radio dial so, and this is this is very critical that there were a limited number of frequencies available. Yeah, it's uh, frequency scarcity, I think. Yeah, that, that's just put a pin in that because that's a very big deal is how this weighed in the favor of the Fairness Doctrine and then also kind of helped kill it in some ways. Mm-hmm. Sure. But uh, basically the, the very progressive view that public interests outweigh private interest and the public has a right to really good information – uh, over the free speech of the broadcaster, even yes. So you just you just hit it right on the head. Like that is the crux of the fairness doctrine, and it seems like okay, depending on your viewpoint, either either like the most um, vile idea ever, right, or just a completely sensible idea, right. And the reason that it, it can present the same this, these two totally different. Um, Opinions is because this idea, the fairness doctrine, is sits right at the heart of the difference between the right and the left, between conservatism and libertarianism and and liberalism. Yeah, right. And it is. It comes down to this: like if you if you have to promote um, public intercourse, like people understanding, not doing it in public, but I mean, discourse, like, discourse. <laughs> I just said public intercourse. So, yeah, I guess doing it in public. <laughs> if you're going to promote public discourse and protect it as a government, saying like the the like it, it's the role of government to say we need to make sure that the quality of the information that's getting out there is protected, mm-hmm. and and that we have to do that, we have to limit what broadcasters can say. We have to curtail free speech to people on the right, like. Right there, full stop. That's a problem. That's mm-hmm. an issue. It's it has fatally flawed because you are curtailing the free speech of somebody, whether it's a whether it's NBC or Joe Schmo who wants to say something on the radio. It doesn't matter. You are curtailing free speech, and therefore that is wrong. The people on the left say, "Well, whoa, whoa, whoa! This is the this is this is a a privilege to broadcast on the radio and." In order to protect the larger public and its interests, we have to curtail that free speech of the very narrowed money moneyed interests that can afford a license to broadcast. And and there's no way to reconcile the two. You can't. It, you have to choose a side. You yeah. have to form an opinion one way or the other. And whatever you choose is your larger view of whether you're a liberal or whether you're conservative. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I mean, it fell along those lines back then and it still does today, mm-hmm. uh, even though the fairness doctrine isn't around, the ideology is. Well, it keeps getting uh, brought out yeah. and kind of, you know, um, forced along a, a, a like an angry parade route in, in order to kind of say, like, look, look, <laughs> look what the government's capable of doing. Look at the yeah. overreach they really want to do. Don't let them do it again with X. Right. You know, so point. it is. It's a huge flashpoint, and, and it's understandable why. It seems like so um, 
kind of limp and bureaucratic and boring, but when you dig into the history of the whole thing and even the the contemporary idea behind it, it's a huge flashpoint politically in the United States. Yeah, so it had a couple of main uh, components and then within that a couple of big, big rules, very mm-hmm. important rules. Uh, the first, the components were, um, they were known coll- together as the fairness rule, which is private broadcasters must report on my, uh, matters of public interest. Like it's a responsibility of you as a broadcaster. That's right. Uh, and private broadcasters must uh, cover opposing perspectives regarding that public interest. Uh, that's a big one. That's a big one. And then the, the, the little rules there, the personal attack rule said that uh, if you're a broadcaster and you are going to run a negative story um, on somebody or something, prior to that, you have to let these people know or this organization know and give them time to respond on the air. Mm-hmm. And then the political editorial rule, which is private broadcasters that air editorial programming that endorses a political candidate must inform other candidates and offer them time to respond on air, uh, not to be confused with the equal time rule. That's that's right. different. Yeah, the equal time rule is, is why debates um, have are supposed to have all candidates because uh, you're supposed to, if you give one candidate time, airtime to say, hey, here's my platform, you're supposed to give all other candidates the equal amount of time. And that that political editorial rule kind of, it's close to it, and it follows in the same tradition and principle. But really, the personal attack rule and the political editorial rule that were part of the fairness doctrine, that's just like the foundation of of good journalism, basically. It was not, they're not radical ideas. That's a good point. So the idea, though, that that public that, or that private broadcasters have to talk about issues and then have to air opposing viewpoints, that is that is kind of controversial because it's saying like he we we the government are saying you have to do this. This is your responsibility. And the idea that the government even has control over airwaves is is in dispute. But it actually dates pretty far back, and we'll talk about the background, the backstory. Behind the Fairness Doctrine after a message. How about that? Sounds good. Okay, Chuck, so there, there, there's one thing to really understand what we're talking about here. Initially, we were talking about radio waves, and then eventually TV waves, and then that eventually turned into the internet. But all these things, especially something like air, air waves for radio and TV, mm-hmm. these exist naturally, right? Yeah. There's not like a government factory that produces radio waves, <laughs> and then the government can say, well, we, we produce these so we can divvy That's them up. That's what you think, man. <laughs> that's a it's it's an artificial idea that the government can say we regulate these airwaves because it's citizens listening to the stuff that's broadcast on the airwaves and it's private companies broadcasting on the airwaves using equipment that's manufactured by other private companies so the government is insinuating itself and saying whoa 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 this is too important to leave to the market uh, we have to regulate this in some ways and we're going to do that and the whole thing actually started um, with the Titanic, to tell you the truth. The Titanic ship? The Titanic <laughs> ship. The very one, Chuck. That's right. Uh, leading up to the Titanic, you know, radio was being used um, and uh, quite a bit in maritime communication. Uh, in fact, we even passed the Ship Act of 1910, which required ships leaving the United States to have radio equipment, mm-hmm. to know how to use it. Uh, and s- sort of laid out some basic broadcasting standards. Right. But what they didn't do was say, all right, we're going to assign radio frequencies um, and we're going to like reserve a channel for emergencies only. Uh, this kind of stung them because a couple of years after that, uh, a little boat called the RMS Titanic. The sank. ship the Titanic? <laughs> it wasn't a little boat. <laughs> it was a ocean liner. Sure. I, I used to know the difference between an ocean liner and a... Cruise ship? I think ocean uh, liners are transatlantic. Is that is that the deal? I've never heard the difference. I think that's I just the deal. Figured it was one and the same or something. Nah, I think an ocean liner specifically can cross the two different continents. I got yeah. I guess a cruise ship could just hug the coast or something like that. I think like that's a the schmo. difference. But I might be making all that up. 
I got gotcha. you. So uh, the the Titanic sank. There was a lot of radio traffic going on as the disaster breaks out. Obviously, so even though this uh, in Newfoundland they they heard very early on and picked up this distress call, they couldn't really get it out because everything was all clogged up. Yeah, there are a lot of ham radio operators screwing things up at the time. That's right, and that's what uh, prompted the Radio Act of 1912. Um, which was sort of the beginnings of the foundation of what would eventually become the Fairness Doctrine. Yeah. Uh, because what it did was it established spectrum allocation, and the FCC basically said, hey, listen, uh, if you want to broadcast, you can't just broadcast. you got to come to us and get a license. Yeah, initially it was the Commerce Department that was, that was um, issuing licenses. Yeah. And then <clears throat> came the Radio Act of 1927, that formed the Radio Commission, and they started handling licenses. But not only did they start saying, okay, you're a broadcaster, here's your license, this is the frequency that you can um, broadcast on. Prior to that, that was around in the Radio Act, that was the Commerce Department that did that, but there was no way to police it. And so if you were, say, NBC Radio, and there were a bunch of people broadcasting on your frequency at 7 p.m., you'd just switch to, yeah, well, no, you'd just switch to a different frequency and start broadcasting. And so there was no way to police it. Well, with the Radio Act of 1927 and the creation of this Radio Commission, there was a way to police it because you could have your license revoked. And if you kept broadcasting, guys would come to your house and kidnap your family. Yeah, but uh, the the really important thing, and this is how it, uh, <laughs> not your family. Right. The really important thing right. was that it established what we talked about before, which is spectrum scarcity. Right. There's only so much space now. If everyone has to apply for a license who wants to broadcast, mm-hmm. um, it's just, it's it was very key in, in the setup and then, like I said, eventual downfall of the Fairness Doctrine. Yeah, because it says this, like, okay, here's the full, here's the full spectrum, the um, radio spectrum that we can broadcast on. Um, and we're going to carve it up, and each person gets a specific frequency to broadcast on. That's, that means that there's a finite number of frequencies, so there's a finite number of licenses, which means that not everybody can have a, a license to broadcast, which means that, that the people who do have that license to broadcast have a very important privilege afforded to them. Mm-hmm. And because it's a privilege, because the government has insinuated itself and said, we're doling out these privileges, we've decided, we the government have decided that that you have a responsibility to pre- present fair and balanced reporting to the government, to the uh, public, uh, including basically all sides of an issue. Like you have a responsibility that supersedes your right to free speech as a broadcaster. That was that's what spectrum scarcity created. Right. Uh, this the nineteen twenty seven Radio Act, um, while it did establish that, it kind of made some errors, uh, basically, in how they set it up. There were a lot of misspellings. Yeah, <laughs> there were a lot of misspellings. But they would say basically to the broadcasters, you have to air content mm-hmm. In support of, quote, public convenience, interest, or necessity, end quote. Mm -hmm. Right. But they didn't really define what that was. Which, by by the way, I looked it up. I was like, what does public convenience mean? Apparently, in the UK, it means a public toilet. And that's the only (laughs) definition I could ever find for it. So, somebody just made that up. (laughs) Yeah, to the air content about public toilets. Right. That would be great, actually. Like that part from Naked Gun. (laughs) It's just nothing but the sounds of people peeing. Um. But this is a big problem because if something isn't clearly defined, then it can't be uh, it can't be enforced, right? You know. So in 1934, they knew that this was a problem. Uh, this was uh, how many years later? Like seven years later, mm-hmm. and they said, you know what? We need to issue another act because we're the federal government, right? And so the Federal Communications Act replaced the Radio Act. The FCC was born, replaced the Radio Commission, Mm -hmm. and the FCC said, all right, the first thing we got to do is define what this public interest thing is all about. Right, because not only does it make it difficult to enforce, it makes it difficult to follow. So, like, even if you're a broadcaster and you're like, I totally agree with this. I do have a a right and a responsibility. Uh, What's this public public convenience (laughs) thing again? Like, how do I do this? What am I supposed to be doing? And everyone's like, I don't know. And if it's not defined, yeah, you can't enforce it. You also can't follow it if you want to follow it. So there was just too much gray area. And so the FCC 
um, when this was created, this idea of, um, okay, we're going to set about cre- like defining this stuff and really generating this idea of what it means to be a responsible broadcaster. It happened at a really liberal time in America's history, right after the New Deal had really kind of come along and, and changed the complexion of America pretty dramatically. And liberalism and pr- progressivism had really set in and was entrenched in the fabric of American politics. And so there was this idea that the best way to prevent broadcasters from from asserting an overbearing influence on public discourse because they had the loudest voice because they had the radio licenses, right? Mm-hmm. Was to just say, you guys can't editorialize at all. Yeah. And this became known as uh, the Mayflower decision or the Mayflower doctrine. It was a 1941 FCC ruling that basically said, you know what, um, you guys, you guys have to basically be n- neutral in that you can't, you can't say anything. You can't present any particular side. If we find out that you guys are promoting, say, the uh, policy agenda or the favorite politics of like your station owner or your parent company or something like that, yeah. You're in trouble, and that was kind of like the the uh, the the line that they drew. No editorializing whatsoever. That's right, and that um, that really sort of laid the groundwork in a big, big way for the fairness doctrine. Mm-hmm. Even though the fairness doctrine sort of undid that, it did, and said, oh, "Well, you, you know, editor, you can editorialize, but you just have to do it on both sides." Right. You have to present, present, prevent, present both sides, and like. On the one hand, that was a gift to the to the broadcasters, right? They were saying, "Okay, you can you can use your own voice, you can state your own opinion, you can support your own political candidate, but you have to give airtime to the other political candidate. You have to give airtime to people with an opposing view of what you just said." Yeah. So it was it was kind of like a compromise, but it was also a weakening of the progressivist agenda, I guess. Yeah, and the broadcasters did not like it uh, for sure because, again, they were still sort of confused about what what does public importance mean. We, we're not even sure, you know, everything's decided and applied on a case-by-case basis. In other that's words, a, if, Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah, in other words, if somebody uh, just files a complaint, basically, they will take up that complaint and hear mm-hmm. that complaint. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like some, like, big sweeping thing. No, but it was also, Chuck, that's – so that, that means that it's um, – it's uh, capricious and arbitrary, basically, applying the rule on a case-by-case basis rather than a sweeping regulation. But it's also a weakness because it means that the FCC is saying, we'll leave it to you, the broadcasters, to police yourselves. We're only going to act when somebody complains. Yeah, so what happened in a lot of cases was some radio stations were like, you know what, I'm not even going to go there, <laughs> and I'm going to avoid controversy mm-hmm. um, at all, you know, altogether uh, because I don't think we pointed out uh, it, it wasn't just about politics. It was basically covered controversial issues in general, like, mm-hmm. and that this will play a big part, like everything from uh, climate denial to the anti-vax movement in the 1980s. Like, they all had to have equal time under the fairness doctrine, right. and a lot of people point to the fairness doctrine as like how these movements got jump started to begin with, because they didn't put those opinions in context. They were just mm-hmm. like. You know, they didn't say this is very scientifically valid. And now here's the opposing viewpoint, which has no science to back it up. Right, exactly. And and that was they, the fact that they didn't do that. They were erring on the side of caution um, over editorializing. But also probably they were trying to make sure that everybody was was not offended. They didn't offend either side because they didn't want to be boycotted with uh, advertising, too. Or fined. Sure. Yeah. So that was a big problem with the fairness doctrine is that it was ill-defined. It was um, it opened the door for opposing viewpoints that 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 put them on equal footing or equal ground right. with with um, with other viewpoints that were say scientifically backed, which created what's called the false balance problem. Um, and then uh, th- there was opposition to it. To basically the to the to the fairness doctrine from from the outset, not just the broadcasters who thought they didn't want any kind of restriction on their speech, but also interestingly, um, it represented an, a loophole to combat advertising too, which I think the FCC hadn't thought of. But they said, yeah, this actually applies when it when it came up. There was um, 
a ruling in 1967 that found that cigarette advertising um, qualified as a, um, a, a, a presentation of one viewpoint yeah. of a controversial subject. Basically, cigarette smoking's great. Go go smoke some cigarettes. And so some consumer groups uh, petitioned the FCC and said, hey, uh, we should be able to give the opposing viewpoint, don't smoke cigarettes, it's bad for you. And the FCC said, you're absolutely right. And advertisers were like, whoa, 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 this is a big deal. And now they jumped in to back up the National Association of Broadcasters, which was opposed to the Fairness Doctrine in general. Yeah, and it also, you know, that kind of thing, if advertising counts, that opens the doors, and it did for, you know, like, uh, and we'll we'll get to this more specifically later, but like if a power company wanted to do an ad about mm-hmm. their great new nuclear power plant that they were going to build, mm-hmm. like a liberal group can come forward and say, no, 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 like that's not an ad. Um, I know they're paying for airspace, but that means we need to talk about the ills of nuclear power. Right, right. And I mean, even if it wasn't, Ed, the, the, the opposing group could say we get free airtime to right. say that this is the opposite of that. And so if you're a broadcaster, especially if you're in a, like a successful market, that, you know, 15, 30, 60 second spot is important. You don't want to give that away. But it may also, you may have like an interest in whatever the other group is protesting. So just on that in that respect as well, you don't really want to air the opposing view. The problem with the Fairness Doctrine, if you're libertarian or conservative, is that it said you have to do that. You have to air this opposing view. The FCC says so. That's right. So you got to think this is going to end up in court at some point. Sure. And it did uh, quite, a, quite a few times over the years, not surprisingly. Uh, and for about a 20 to 30-year period, U.S. courts basically supported the FCC uh, in fulfilling this mandate, um, there were some some real highlights in 1969. There were a couple of big court rulings uh, that affirmed this enfor- uh, enforcement. Mm-hmm. One was Red Lion Broadcasting Company Incorporated, the FCC. It's a little mouthy. It is. So this one was sort of uh, two cases in one. Um, the Supreme Court was able to kill two birds. Uh, one case was an FCC appeal of a lower court ruling mm-hmm. uh, that said this, you know, the personal attack and political editorial rules, those two big rules, were unconstitutional. Uh, and the second was a broadcaster appealing of a lower court ruling that said the FCC's application of those rules was constitutional. So right, they said, so- all right, you guys, let's just combine this into one thing and we'll hear the case. Uh, and in the the latter one, there was uh, an investigative journalist named Fred J. Cook, and he filed a complaint. And like we said, it was case-by-case case stuff. So mm-hmm. these, this complaint made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, Fred Cook filed a complaint against Redline Broadcasting, who owned uh, WCGB, because they had a broadcast with Reverend Billy James Hargis that claimed that Cook, who was an author uh, and wrote a very uh, kind of salacious expose about the FBI – uh, and this this reverend said, you know what, this author is, worked for the communist, and he attacked J. Edgar Hoover, mm-hmm. and we. it turns out they didn't contact Cook to give him that equal chance to respond, and they denied him his demand for that, Right. and it made it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, you know what, Redline, you're wrong. You got to do this. Right. So, I, and I, I, since the Supreme Court ruled that, that Cook could have equal airtime, this is like, I think, 12 years or nine years later— and I could not find anywhere if he actually took him up on it or not. But the whole thing was just like a, it was an ad hominem attack, an attack on him, on Cook, because Cook had written a book against Barry Goldwater, who was a, a presidential candidate at the time, and the people uh, who ran Red Lion didn't like it. Um, so they attacked Cook. But he, so they, in this ruling, though, and this is the whole point, not not that Cook got his time, his airtime, but that the, the Supreme Court ruled that the FCC applying this fairness doctrine was um, good and fine and constitutional, which right. is a big deal. They ruled that the FCC could constitutionally um exercise this fairness doctrine, which is a, that was just enormous. Yeah, it was a very, very big deal. Yeah. Uh, the other big kind of landmark case was that same year, um, the Office of Communication of the United Church of Christ et al., the FCC. 
<laughs> Another scintillating title. Right. Uh, there was a U.S. appeals court who overturned the FCC's decision not to consider a petition to revoke the license of Lamar Broadcasting, uh, WLBT. Mm-hmm. So these citizens got together, uh, civil rights groups, and they were like, you know what? This station is awful. They are, first of all, they're not covering um, the civil rights movement, and they're flat-out racist and segregationist. Right. And so we're going to petition this, and the FCC denied the petition uh, in 1964 and said citizens don't have the standing to file a petition like this. Which is pretty surprising because, yeah. they're, you know, the citizens are the ones the FCC have always been, like, fighting for. Right. right. It was a little... Um, hinky? Hinky is the word that we used to use. <laughs> <laughs> so the petitioners appealed, and in 1966... Uh, yeah, 66. The the Court of Appeals uh, for D.C. said you do have standing to petition the FCC to revoke a license right? because that's all about protecting the public interest, which is what the FCC was supposed to be doing in the first place. So get back to work. And finally, in 1967, uh, the FCC revisited that petition, rejected it again right? Uh, because they said, hey, this station has actually kind of taken some steps since then, and we think they're doing the right thing. Petitioners still weren't happy. They appealed that. And in 1969, uh, the FCC actually revoked Lamar Broadcasting's license. They did. As far as as far as I could tell, Lamar Broadcasting was the one and only company to lose their license under the Fairness Doctrine. Like permanently, time. yeah. Right. Um, they never got it back. And chuck a little cherry on top because Lamar Broadcasting lost the license of WLBT in Jackson, Mississippi. It was up for grabs, and it was uh, taken by a majority black-owned group that uh, that took over the station at that point. Nice. Isn't that nice? Yeah. So um, things seem to be going smoothly for the Fairness Doctrine. What could go wrong? Well, we'll tell you what could go wrong after a break. How about that? Okay, Chuck. Uh, so one thing that I've learned is it's not necessarily like the Supreme Court is um, their decisions are are final forever. They kind of shift and move over time, over long enough periods of time. And the Fairness Doctrine is a really good example of that because in the '60s, the Supreme Court ruled pretty clearly the FCC was constitutional. But um, by the end of the 70s, the Supreme Court started to side with broadcasters instead. The winds of change kind of blew through there. And there was one case in particular that the Supreme Court heard in 1979 that um, signaled a, a real change for um, the Fairness Doctrine and the FCC applying it. And it was a case that involved WJIM-TV in Lansing, Michigan, which is owned by a guy named Harold Gross. Yeah, so uh, the complaint here was that he, or the station rather, uh, via Harold Harold Gross, had abused uh, their broadcasting power to the detriment of the public. So what he did was he denied airtime to political rivals um, in some cases. In other cases, he censored uh, coverage of local businesses if they didn't advertise with them. <laughs> yeah, he was he was accused of clipping, which is taking like when a when a network delivers a show, it has commercial breaks in it. He would have his editors go through and add even more commercial breaks, which yeah. you're not supposed to do. Um, that was a big one. Didn't cover the Jimmy Hoffa disappearance because he didn't like Jimmy Hoffa's politics, even though it was a national and a local story. Yeah, so in 1975, uh, a hearing by the FCC said, you know, you vi- you violated the fairness rule. <clears throat> We're taking your license, buddy. Uh, but he appealed it, and this time uh, he won the appeal. And like you said, this was a big shift in the way things were being thought about as far as the fairness doctrine went. Um, hey, one one more thing about Harold Gross before we move on. This guy, uh, um, he was— such a businessman that when he started his TV station in 1950, WJIM, he was actually one of the first 108 license holders to broadcast on TV. But he wasn't sure that TV was going to stick around, that it was going to take off as a technology. So he built the WJIM facilities so that it could be converted into a motel if TV didn't go anywhere. So the original WJIM um, TV station had a pool out back. What is it now? Do you know? What is what? 
the building. The pool? I don't know. I looked up to see if there was anything um, recent about it, and I didn't find any any new stuff. But I I, clear, I saw a picture of the station, and there's definitely a pool out back from back in the 50s. Kind of a nice perk. I guess so. I wonder if he let anybody swim in it or not. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe if you advertised, he would have let you. So uh, this was the uh, mid to late 70s, and then... Things really, really started changing in the 1980s because uh, that whole thing about – remember when he said putting a pin in uh, spectrum scarcity? Mm-hmm. That was no longer a problem. Uh, by the mid-1980s, there were more than 10,000 radio stations, 1,300 TV stations, mm-hmm. uh, about 1,700 newspapers. And the whole sort of drumbeat was like, uh, wait a minute – there's not a problem here anymore with scarcity. We should be able to do what we want because you told newspapers from the very beginning that their free speech was uh, protected and they could do whatever they want. Why are we any different? Yeah, that, that's a really big point um, that a lot of people pointed to over the years is why does this just apply to electronic media? Like the, the print media literally has an editorial page where they come out with positions on candidates and all this stuff. Why doesn't it apply to them? And for years and years and years, it was any schmo can basically go get a newspaper printed. The radio's different because of that spectrum scarcity. But yeah, as the, the satellite people came along and as cable came along, that just kind of went out the door. So spectrum scarcity going away and the fact that the newspaper industry, the print media was not regulated anywhere near the same way, really kind of removed any remaining foundation for for the Fairness Doctrine to to stand on. Yeah, so in 1985, the FCC uh, kind of got their gears turning and said, you know what, Um, we think this is, uh, we want Congress to review this, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to institute a public comment period even, and uh, we think we should abandon the, the personal attack rule and in this case-by-case thing. Right. And, yeah, and they did this for, like, two years. And while the FCC is holding, like, these public hearings on it, Congress at the same time was saying, well, we don't really want the fairness doctrine to go away. And not just the left. There was a bipartisan-supported bill that got passed in Congress to codify the fairness doctrine, but it was um, vetoed by Reagan. And so after that, that was basically it for the Fairness Doctrine. Yeah, the FCC voted uh, unanimously to just get rid of it. They did. And so they didn't actually get rid of it. They just stopped enforcing it, or some parts of it. They kept enforcing, I think, the um, personal attack and political editorial provisions up until like 2000 for like another 13 years. But the idea that you had to promote um opposing viewpoints yeah on your your television station or your radio station that went away starting in 1987 and a lot of people say that really changed the american media landscape big time yeah i mean <laughs> it, it, you know it, depending on who you are <laughs> I'm just going to sit back and watch I know. I'm trying to dance around this. Um, (laughs) Depending on who you are, you probably have a very strong opinion about the fairness doctrine one way or the other. Right. Or you may think it was a mixed thing. Um, It was definitely a flawed policy. I think everyone agrees that it wasn't perfect. Um, But the legacy is really complex. Um, You know, getting rid of it basically opened the door for uh, what we have today, which is a, a degraded news standard. Mm-hmm. Um, minority viewpoints that aren't necessarily covered, uh, and how polarized we are because, you know, people dug in and they said, all right, I'm going to start my super conservative radio stations. And then people said, I'm going to start my super conservative liberal uh, <laughs> website and, and radio shows. Right. And liberals are going to listen to theirs and conservatives are going to listen to theirs and never the tween shall meet. Right, right. And so especially if you have like each side promoting a, a viewpoint or an agenda um, to the detriment of the other side, there's there's like the middle ground is lost, which I mean, some people, I know some people aren't very hip on centrism these days anyway. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you can keep a, a pretty decent sized society together when you when you g- kind of follow a centrist axis upward and onward, you know, and I think that 
to me, the fairness doctrine showed that. I mean, like, I, I don't think it's a big surprise where I fall on whether the fairness doctrine was a good idea or not. But I, I, I just don't think it's, um, like, I can see saying all these people out here need good information, and it's probably not going to just get out there on its own if, if we, the government, don't step in and say, here's how we need to get good information out. And I think the current media landscape is just complete proof positive of that, that if you just don't, if you just let it all go free for all, then then you end up with what we have, that this is what the market offers us. Echo the, chambers. Echo chambers, polarization, and a huge div, div, division in, in the country um, with without anybody saying, well, wait, 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 yes, over here, you guys are right. Over here, you guys are right. And, and things are really messed up. But also, what about this other stuff? We kind of all agree on this part. And what about this part? Yeah, we have a lot of common ground here. No one's talking about that. And that used to be the role that the, the media played before. Yeah, I mean, one thing we can say is without the Fairness Doctrine, um, we may not have gotten any of these minority viewpoints in the 1940s and 50s and 60s. Right. Uh, people might not have been as well-informed except maybe via newspaper about the civil rights movement, women's rights movement. Um, how bad smoking is, uh, about nuclear power plants. Like all of these things that were sort of in the shadows were now now had a, uh, a guaranteed platform. Right. Um, but like we mentioned earlier, because they didn't really uh, – they had to give these opposing viewpoints. He also uh, could have possibly borne the anti-vax movement and the, and the climate denial movement and stuff like that. So it was flawed to be sure. Sure. Yeah, you, there's – from what I understand, like – any Democrat to the right of Ralph Nader, which is almost everybody, says, yes, fairness doctrine, what a terrible idea, terrible idea. It was officially repealed in 2011, and if you'll think back, that was under the Obama administration. So the Obama administration's FCC was the one that officially took the fairness doctrine off of the books, removed it. Yeah, but, I mean, that was a purge. That was just like— there's a bunch of rotten food in the fridge, and why has no one thrown it out yet? Yeah, but it was also pretty symbolic, you know. Sure. It was a it was a symbolic act, whether they intended it or not. But but the the idea that um that it was it was removed by a, a Democratic um, lefty president's administration is it's I don't know it's saying something I think. Yeah, uh, here's where we are today, though. There was a poll, a Gallup poll, in, just last year in 2018 that mm-hmm. found Americans uh, don't trust. The news. <laughs> right. Uh, they guessed, uh, let me see, 62% of what they uh, hear is biased, uh, 44% is inaccurate, and 39% is misinformation. That's uh, Those numbers seem low <laughs> to me. That's not a great place to be in as a country, though. No, it's a terrible place. It's a scary place. Like, how is this country still together, you know? Yeah. Um, but And, and the, the other thing is we're going to get so much guff because we didn't come out and just stay completely down the middle. But I mean, I want to say, like, I understand where where people on the right are coming from with this. Like, ideologically, this is censorship and um, yeah. uh, the the prohibition of f- the exercise of free speech. And that's, that is one of, that is a, a core um, founding value of conservatism and libertarianism. So, like, I can understand how you'd look at the fairness doctrine and be like, this is government overreach in its worst, in its worst examples, you know? Yeah, but it's like, it wasn't, it wasn't like state-run radio, you know? It, no. It wasn't like no. the government, the federal government propagandizing their agenda. Right. Uh but yeah. it, it was saying like, hey, you can say this viewpoint. Right. You also have to show the other viewpoint. To me, that's almost impossible to argue with. Yeah, and I think don't newspapers of, of uh, high standing still on their editorial page kind of print the two opposing um, opinions side by yeah. side? Yeah, that's what op-ed stands for is opposite the editorial page. So the editorial page will be the, the newspaper's opinion, their editorial board, and then on the literal opposite page yeah. – is the basically the opposing opinion of that. Yeah, it's just a high journalistic standard. Right. But this is the government saying this. Uh, newspapers do this on their own, I guess just out of tradition, um, whereas electronic media is a little more Wild Westy than that. That's right. So um, here we are today. Uh, pretty interesting times we live in. And it's all because the Fairness Doctrine went away. 
Anyway, thanks for listening to this episode of Stuff You Should Know. <laughs> if you want to know more about the fairness doctrine, just go outside and see how you like things. Uh, and since I said that, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this uh, the sound of our voices. Or I'm sorry, let me say this, the color of our voices. Oh, yeah, I know what my voice is colored. This is good. In fact, yours isn't even color. This is more of a feel thing. Okay. So, hey, guys, I listened to the episode on perfect pitch. Uh, you mentioned that synesthetes are often good candidates for having perfect pitch. I fall into the category of being someone who possesses both. I've been serious uh, about my musicianship since my earliest recollections in life. Uh, and that's when I began vol- involuntarily hearing all the individual musical notes in their own unique, unchanging colors. For example, the sound of the note F. Uh, I should have brought in, dude, I bought one of those little, uh, what do you call a it? Pitch pipe. I, got, I bought a pitch pipe. Why didn't you bring it in? <laughs> no, I should have brought it in. The one note harmonica. I should have bought two. I, I'm going to buy you one. I would love it. Can it's you have neat. it engraved too? <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> um, so the sound of F for Allison has never not caused a rush of the color orange to sweep over her from head to foot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also hear people's individual voices and colors. Uh, what's unique about voices to me, is they're incredibly textured in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys have voice colors and textures. I love mine. Read mine. Josh's voice, anytime I hear it, sounds like suede. If suede, so cool. <laughs> if suede could make a sound, <laughs> painted medium to dark brown with a tiny hint of Easter egg purple. That's Very your voice. Nice. That is a lovely combo, if you ask me. Uh, Chuck's voice, on the other hand, has zero fuzz to it at all. Uh, Chuck's voice is very, very metallic, almost shimmery, like you're gazing upon a deep blue-green body of water and you can see straight to the bottom. Nice. That's a nice voice right there, Chuck. These, these are both great voices. Yeah. I'm very happy that, I mean, who knows what what could have come out of this email. <laughs> <laughs> the yours smells like puke. <laughs> and yours sounds like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> the end. <laughs> um, I've come to find out that no two voice colors are exactly the same, kind of like thumbprints and snowflakes. A person's voice color does not morph into something else either if they suddenly start speaking in another language. Uh, and it also has nothing to do with his or her particular uh, personality type. So they're not saying you're smooth like suede on like as a person. Oh, yes, clearly. Or, I think or that, that I'm shimmery as a person. Sure. Uh, the point of the matter, I delight in hearing both of your voices nearly every day as I tune into the show. It's become a staple in my daily existence. Keep on being wonderful. Uh, that is from Allison, who is at our Salt Lake City show. Awesome. And she interacted with us from uh, the crowd. That's great. Thank you for interacting with us, Allison. We appreciate that. It's illegal at our shows, but <laughs> she got, I think I asked a question and she answered it. It's against the rules. That's what they say. Um, well, thanks, Allison. That was one of the more interesting emails we've ever received, frankly. Uh, If you want to be like Allison and go to one of our live shows, you will never regret it for a single moment in your entire life. Go to SYSKlive.com and get tickets, especially Chicago. And uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Allison did too, you can go onto our website, StuffYouShouldKnow.com, follow our social links there, or you can send us an email. Send it off to StuffPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.